Welcome to the Saturday Blitz Podcast with your tailgater crew, John Mitchell and Zach Bogalki. Welcome back to the Saturday Blitz Podcast, everybody. I'm Zach Bogalki here once again with John Mitchell this week. We're going to be talking about the ACC this week as we continue on our 2019 college football previews. As usual, we'll be going by the media poll standings uh, as we talk about each team. Uh, We'll be starting with the ACC Coastal, then diving into the ACC Atlantic before we finish up with our look at the championship game, how we think that's going to wind up. And we'll also be looking at uh, whether any of these teams probably besides Clemson, could make the college football playoff, and finishing up with our offensive and defensive players of the year. So uh, I think we should just dive right in, John. What do you say? Let's do it. All right. So ACC Coastal um, is probably the more interesting of the two divisions this year, I think, given how strong Clemson continues to be in the Atlantic. Um the media picked Georgia Tech to finish last in the in the division. I don't think that's very much of a surprise for anybody, especially given the fact that the Paul Johnson era is over in Atlanta, and we're seeing Jeff Collins come in with a brand new philosophy on both sides of the ball. Um, and I think it also kind of speaks to the fact that among all the other teams in that division, they have the least returning talent as well. So um, with all of those, you know, things combined, uh, do you think Georgia Tech even has any chance of getting bowl eligible this season, John? It would be a big surprise. Like you mentioned, it's, you know, everyone, there's several teams in this division and throughout the country going through coaching changes, obviously, but no one's going through as big of a makeover and change in philosophy as Georgia Tech going from a triple option team under Paul Johnson uh, to a more traditional offensive set. It's going to be fascinating to see what Jeff Collins is able to do in year one because this is going to be a multi-year rebuild in Atlanta because they've got, you know, they've got to recruit not just quarterbacks who more fit the system Collins wants to run here. They've got to recruit offensive linemen that fit the system better too, as well um, as well as receivers, tight ends, everything across the board on offense. So it'll be really interesting to see if he can find maybe some kind of happy medium, some kind of balance in between the system that we saw him running at Temple um, and the system that Georgia Tech's run the last few years um, under Paul Johnson. So if he can find something that kind of fits um, that to, to make the transition maybe a little less rocky in year one, but it's going to be really difficult because they're going to be doing so many different things. I think the future is really bright. He's obviously doing a really, really good job on the recruiting trail. We've seen Georgia Tech skyrocketing up the recruiting rankings, really taking advantage um, of the fact that they are in Atlanta and really trying to make Georgia Tech Atlanta's team. And that's why people for a long time have thought that the Yellow Jackets are kind of a, a sleeping giant in, uh, in college football. Cause I mean, this is a historical program, you know, it's not, um, if you look back in the history of college football, Georgia Tech was at one time a blue blood program, one of the very best programs in college football for a number of years. Um, so it'll be interesting if he can get back there. This year, though, it's going to be really, really difficult, and I don't see them getting out of the cellar. I think they're the safest pick to finish last um, in the Coastal Division. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with you. I think it really does come down to that much change. But I like that you brought up the point about Atlanta and just being in such a major metropolitan area with, 
you know, so much uh, history, so much culture, so much, you know, of interest as well to college age students. I think that's a really big selling point that, you know, Paul Johnson had no real desire to capitalize on. Um, and I think part of that as well is you have an optional offense. You're only going to be recruiting a certain group of guys who actually want to play in that type of offense. Not only do you open up the pool of talent to, um, you know, good talent in that area that actually could fit into a, a wider range of systems. And, you you know, you've got the selling point of the area. I, I think finally finally realizing that and trying to turn this into Atlanta's college football team again is is going to be, you know, really big down the road. Um, but yeah, I'm with you as well. The big, the big question for this team, you know, especially right out of the gate, having to play Clemson, um, I, I guess on one hand, you get the, the very worst possible outcome out of the way right away. Um, and everything is just up and up from there, but it's going to be a lot of growing pains for this group this year. And, um, you know, the fact that they're depending on a, on a lot of youth in a lot of key positions and also have brought in, you know, a bunch of transfers to try to fill out the roster in a way that they can actually begin to play more of Jeff Collins preferred system. So <laughs> I, I think that combination of it all, if everything gels, you know, they could get to, to four or five wins, but I don't think bowl eligibility is in sights for this yellow jackets team this year. Yeah, no, I totally agree. And bowl eligibility is the, is the goal <clears throat> for this team is to try to get there. That would be probably best case scenario. That would take kind of a, you know, all the all good things really happening for Georgia Tech throughout the year, maybe an upset here or there. And it's just it's going to be really difficult to get there. But, you know, I think fans will be patient because I there's a lot of excitement around that program right now. A lot of fans were excited to get to move past the triple option days because, you know, as effective as that was under Paul Johnson, it's not always um it's not the type of offense that's going to inspire the fans to be rowdy and excited and stuff because it can be boring for fans, for your more um, casual college football fans, people who watch the game a little more closely like you and I, we get an appreciation of the option because it's such a you know historic offense and it's still very effective if run well. And obviously Paul Johnson had a lot of success, but it was time for a change. They were ready for a change. So um, it'll definitely – be interesting to see how they do in year one and then what we're talking about next year on this and how big of a step forward they can take right away. Yeah, I, I think that that pretty much sums up Georgia Tech in a nutshell. Exciting future, um, not so exciting present and near future for them. Um, another team that's had a lot of buzz this season because of a coaching change is uh, North Carolina, who the media picked sixth in, in, out of the seven teams in the Coastal. Obviously, the big story there is welcome back, Mac Brown. Um, you know, his second go there in Chapel Hill is, um, you know, it's generated some buzz. He's brought in some a good coaching staff that I think um, is starting to pull in some recruits. But at the same time, uh, you know, I've written about this in the past. When you have second acts at a school, it um, 
more often than not kind of blows up on a, on a school. So do you think Mac Brown can, can turn around the Tar Heels and, and have them competitive this year? You know, I don't know. I, I was definitely um, more negative about the hire um, when it first happened than a lot of people were. Um, like you've mentioned, retreat hires like this rarely work out. Mac Brown, it seemed like the game had passed him by um, nearly a decade ago at this point. Um, after, you know, they made the 2009 National Championship game, everything started going downhill for Texas, ultimately leading to him being out of there. And I don't know. I, I think he has. I like that you mentioned the staff because I think he has done a really good job uh, with the staff. Hiring Jay Bateman as defensive coordinator is maybe the most under, underrated staffing change of the entire college football offseason. He had done such a phenomenal job at Army. So bringing him in to run that defense was a really, really smart and forward-thinking move by Mac Brown. Um, and, you know, one of the issues he had during the end of his kind of run at Texas was their offense has really struggled. Uh, so it'll be interesting. He's going more towards uh, an air raid up-tempo system is what he's shooting for in Chapel Hill with Phil Longo, the old Ole Miss offensive coordinator, taking over uh, play-calling duties and whatnot there. So it'll be interesting to see if they're able to find success there. It's all really going to depend on um, the quarterback, right? It looks like Sam Howell, a true freshman quarterback, is looking like he's going to be the guy. That's far from decided at this point, but he did start the spring game. Uh, and that was a big flip in recruiting because he looked like he was heading to Florida State before Mac Brown came in. So obviously Brown still has chops as a recruiter, as he's proven so far. And just like I was saying about Georgia Tech, a lot of people for years have commented on North Carolina's ability to maybe be a sleeping giant in college football. <coughs> now, they've done they've done a lot more sleeping than they've ever done gianting. But, um, you know, maybe I think the best case scenario for North Carolina is Mac Brown sets them on the path to become that giant that they want to be in college football. And five years from now, someone else takes over the job um, and all the hard work that he kind of sowed, um, you know, they start reaping in the next, you know, five to 10 years. But I mean, this is obviously a short term hire. Uh, Matt Brown's not going to be there for the next 10 years or anything like that. This is a short term move to hopefully plant the seeds for North Carolina to be uh, a contender in the ACC again in a few years. Yeah, I, I definitely agree with you. I think it's really hard to, to think of Brown as anything but sort of that caretaker coach. I mean, he's 67 years old. He's about to turn 68 right at the start of the season. So, um, you know, I, I really don't see him trying to be a, a Bill Snyder type just hanging on forever. And uh, so, yeah, I, I think it's a great point about both the ability to lay a good foundation. Brown obviously has great connections in Chapel Hill. He was well-loved when he left the first time to take the Texas job. And, you know, it has generated some excitement uh, in the program again. So in that regard, I think it is a successful hire. They needed something to rejuvenate and, and re-energize that fan base. And, Obviously, wins are the easiest way to do that, but, you know, nostalgia is certainly another great way to bring that about, and I think that's exactly what this this is is doing there in Chapel Hill. 
I like that you mentioned the quarterback situation. I think that's really the big question mark because the running game looks like it's going to be good again. Um, you know, they have, uh, why am I blanking? You know, they have, um, I had the names right up here. And my, never mind. <laughs> uh, Michael Carter. Yeah, yeah, they had Carter. So Antonio Williams. Yeah, thank you. I got it all back up. I had my notes. Oh, sorry. I had my notes, and then they kind of got lost. Yeah, I <laughs> um, So, yeah, you know, North Carolina has back, you know, a trio of really good running backs. Um, not, not any one of them out of that trio of Antonio Williams, Michael Carter, and Javante Williams really put up huge numbers on their own, but they were kind of that Cerberus backfield, you know, the three-headed beast, put up 1,300 yards together and, you know, average six yards a carry. So no one of them has a lot of, you know, wear and tear on their body as well. And I think if they can continue to employ that platoon system, the running game will be really good in the next year. So it really does come down to the passing game and whether Howell or, you know, whether it's Cade Fortin or Jace Reuter come in um, and get those starts as well. Whoever it is, it's going to be a young guy, whether it's a true freshman or a redshirt freshman. And with only 48 offensive line starts returning um, from last year's team, it could be a long year for the passing game in Chapel Hill. Yeah, and having that kind of three-headed monster, like you said, to lean on the running game will be big for a young quarterback while he, you know, whoever it is, finds his confidence and finds his game. So, but yeah, it's, it's going to be, I think, an uphill battle for North Carolina as well to get to a bowl game this year, um, even in what's really a weaker division. I think it's going to be a real challenge to get there in year one for Mac Brown. I mean, you're talking about a team that won two games last year. So if they could double that win total uh, and get to four, maybe even five wins, I think that would be a big step in the right direction, leading to what could be a breakthrough year in 2020 with a talented recruiting class coming in. Totally. Well, you know, I, I, I agree with you in North Carolina. It's really progress. That's the biggest thing they're looking for this year. Now, in terms of, you know, their biggest rival, at least on the hardwood, um, Duke, I I think looking at their situation as the number five team in the media poll really comes down to um, replacing Daniel Jones. That's obviously the big question mark there for them, Um, because I think defensively they're going to have a great defense coming back. Um, You know, eight starters return, 71% of their you know, defensive production from last year returns. So they've got a great group. Um, And I I think, so I think the big question marks for Duke are obviously on offense. Um, The thing that's working in their favor is they do have an offensive line that's more experienced, even as one of, you know, only 60 uh, starts back, but they are the most experienced unit in the Coastal. So that could really work in their favor and, and help whoever steps into, you know, life after Jones and, you know, allow them to have an easier transition. Yeah, and I mean, the good thing for um, David Cutcliffe is that Quentin Harris has plenty of starting experience, plenty of game experience filling in for Jones over the last few years when he was injured. Um, So he's got a guy who's, you know, a senior quarterback 
and he has, you know, game experience and everything. And plus, Cutcliffe, of all things, has always been a quarterback whisperer. He's always been a guy who can groom and mold quarterbacks. That was a big talking point around the NFL draft this past year and why Daniel Jones was taken so high is because he had the Cutcliffe pedigree, the Cutcliffe background. Uh, we obviously all know he coached the Manning, um, the Manning brothers and everything like that. So he's got that pedigree. So I think quarterback play will in the very least be somewhat effective because if Quentin Harris struggles, he'll find someone else to get in there and take those snaps. I like what you said about defense. I think a big boost on their defense is getting Mark Gilbert back in the secondary. That was a big loss in September last year when he went down with a hip injury that cost him the season. He was a guy that was getting first round NFL draft hype after being an all ACC pick in 2017. So getting him back, uh, will be big, and just like we talked about Georgia Tech kind of getting baptism by fire to open the year, Duke gets the ultimate baptism by fire as well when they open in Atlanta against Alabama. Yeah. Um, I don't think anyone, even Duke fans and parents of Duke players, are expecting much for the Blue Devils in that game. Um, but, you know, Cutcliffe is another guy we've talked about on this podcast, kind of the underrated coaches in college football. And he remains one of the most consistently underrated coaches to me. He's never going to have, you know, top 25, top 30 recruiting classes at Duke, but he consistently fields competitive teams who play really hard and they're typically able to, you know, break through and get bowl eligibility. And that's a lot of people are picking them to be right on the cusp of bowl eligibility this year, and I think that's probably fair with losing Daniel Jones um, in particular because they will take at least a bit of a step back at quarterback this year because of that. But smart money to me is still on Duke getting that six wins because that's just what Cutcliffe's able to do, it seems like, there in recent years is just find a way to get six wins and get them to a bowl game, which is really – you know, a big season for Duke, right? I mean, that's the goal every year is bowl eligibility. If they can get there, then everyone's happy there. Yeah, I, and I think the big thing for them is, you know, last year they were a good road team going 4-2, and two, and I think if they can, you, you know, really at least split the, the the big road games that they have this year, you know, Middle Tennessee State and Wake Forest, you've got to think that they have a real chance in those games. Um. Obviously, the big toss-ups are, are North Carolina, Virginia, and Virginia Tech. I, I think against the Tar Heels, they do have the chance to win that game. Um, Virginia and Virginia Tech are a little bit more question marks in terms of, of how that goes. But I think going 3-2 and two, um, in, in those five games will at least, like you said, set them up for that sixth win and, and getting to a bowl game. And, you know, for Duke fans, for the longest time that was a pipe dream. So I think the fact that you see them going to bowl games every year is, is really something, at least in my lifetime, that's been quite a, a pleasant surprise. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, if Daniel Jones had decided to come back for his last season in Durham, it wouldn't be a stretch to say that Duke might be even the favorite to take the Coastal Division this year because of that. I think the uncertainty around whether, you know, whether Quentin Harris can be the guy for a full season or not is keeping me from having that kind of optimism. But this is a talented team, and this is a division that's completely wide open at this point. Yeah, well, and I think it's the passing game all around because all of last year's top receivers are also gone from that unit. Right. Um, and it, it, it's going to depend on Harris developing a rapport with, with new receivers that 
you know, he's only really worked with through the spring. And I think if that happens and if he's able to do that, seven or eight wins isn't out of the the realm of possibility for this team. But yeah, I think bowl eligibility is really their, you know, their ceiling this year um, because of that uncertainty on that in that part of that phase of the game. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Where are we going next? Let's move forward. Yeah, we're going to be talking about Pitt next, who's always been uh, one of the most uh, enigmatic teams in the ACC Coastal, I guess I could say. Uh, They seem to always be one of those teams that is at least going to pull off one upset a year, really, um, you know, wreck somebody's season. And at the same time, they're the type of team where if they're going to have a a championship season themselves, it always seems like they have, you know, four, five, six losses getting there. Um, So I I think this year's Pitt team, you know, they have Kenny Pickett um, back at quarterback for what that's worth. Um, And, you know, the big thing for this team is going to be consistency, I think that's really the big thing for them is this team, you know, last year had that five and one stretch, but outside of that, they only strung together two other victories. And it was, you know, it it was really uh, a hot and cold thing with this pit team and being able to find like that warm medium where they have a very comfortable, you know, like, you, you can crank the shower all the way to cold. You can crank it all the way to hot. And you're going to be miserable either way. You know, like, even when you're winning, it's like, when is this going to flip the other way? Finding that 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 balance is going to be huge. Yeah, I don't think anything was more indicative of the Coastal Division's weakness last year than Pitt winning the division and ultimately finishing um, after the bowl off 7-7 seven and seven overall which is a hilarious record, to be honest. Like, I really enjoy the fact that they were 7-7 seven and because, seven, it, you know, it's challenging to get there. You don't see many teams finish 7-7, seven and seven, so that's pretty awesome. <laughs> no, um, yeah. The, the big thing this year, you know, Kenny Pickett's got to take a step forward. Um, he was solid, if unspectacular, last year. He was more of a game manager, and he got to be a game manager because they had two dynamite running backs, and Quadre Leeson and Darren Hall both – both guys who finished with over 1,100 yards and combined for 21 rushing touchdowns last year. Both of those guys are gone now, so they've got to be replaced. They've got to be replaced along with four starters up front. So it's going to be a challenge for Pitt to replicate that success on the ground, and that's really what turned the tide after kind of a uh, you know a rough start to the season. That five and one stretch, a lot of that was because Elisa and Hall really took over. Um, Pat Narduzzi found what this team was and they were able to get things going. And then obviously they had the, the struggles at the end of the year and the struggles at the end of the year ultimately led to a change in offensive philosophy because they got rid of Sean Watson and now former Massachusetts head coach Mark Whipple is the new offensive coordinator at Pitt. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what he's able to do. He's got the experience kind of grooming quarterbacks as well. He wants coach Ben Roethlisberger. So that's always been a big selling point for Whipple. So will he be able to get Kenny Pickett to take the next step? Because the only chance Pitt has of competing um, in the Coastal Division again this year is if Pickett can take a big step forward. Um, And if he stays around uh, where he was last year, it might even be challenging for Pitt to go bowling. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, a great point. And bringing up the offensive line is huge, you know. If Duke's strength and its ability to kind of burst forward is there, you know, the fact that they do have a bit more experienced offensive line, Pitt's in that exact opposite boat. Kenny Pickett's going to have to grow despite that. And the running game's going to have to rediscover its identity with new guys despite that offensive line. Because as you said, four guys are gone four starters are gone. They only have 37 total starts on that line returning. Um, it, it's just a, it's, it's a really dangerous situation for that team in terms of it could really kind of snowball down the hill very early. Um, I think the biggest thing that works in their favor is just the, the interdivisional scheduling. They don't have Clemson. They don't have Florida State. They don't have NC State. They, um, you know, they do have Syracuse, but other than that, they avoided the, top, the other three of the top four in the Coastal, at least as the media sees it. And they get to play both Miami and Virginia at home. And so, you know, if they can steal one of those, there's, and as I mentioned, they always seem to have the ability to steal one game against a team that's, let's, let's face it, let's be honest, is better than them. They're able to punch up to their competition at least once a season. And if it's one of those games, they can, I think, get to bowl eligibility. I'm not going to, I'm not looking at a, a total tank, but I think, again, a 6-6 six and six season is a very pit way to go, and I don't think that's going to get them to a conference championship game this year. But they could go 6-7 and seven this year after a bowl game. Yeah, that's probably, that's probably fair. <laughs> so, yeah, um, you know, I, I, uh, I think the next place we want to go is Virginia Tech. That's that's the next team that, that the media picked uh, going third this year. And I, I think that it's really uh, going to come down to what's the most experienced returning defense in all of college football. Yeah, I, I think Virginia Tech, it all begins and ends with that most experienced defense in all of college football. The one, you know, on the other side of the ball, they, you know, they have Ryan Willis is back. Um, you know, he took over for Josh ja- Jackson through the season. Um, most of their receivers are back. The offense should be okay. Um, I think... A couple of question marks around, um, you know, on the defense in terms of, um, or sorry, on the offense in terms of continuing to, uh, you know, burst, you know, continue to take those next steps. I think the big thing with Virginia Tech is we haven't seen a lot of big playability from them or a lot of explosiveness on that offense, and that's really what's kind of cost them. I think Josh Jackson gave that to them in a way that Ryan Willis hasn't, and so it's going to be incumbent on Willis taking that next step because the defense is going to have them in games. Yeah, uh, Ryan Willis was really effective last season when he took over for Josh Jackson. Uh, He took care of the football, which is, you know, a big deal. Um, You know, something that, you know, Josh Jackson has struggled with was – turnovers and getting a guy who at least could keep the offense moving forward and not giving up takeaways was big. The big deal for Virginia Tech last year was it was the 
the worst defense Bud Foster has fielded in a long, long time defensively. They were, and part of that, you know, like you said, they bring back pretty much everybody from that defense. So part of that last year was they were extremely young on that side of the ball. Yeah. Uh, but it still just did not look like a Bud Foster defense. And I don't think there was any um, weirder game and to that effect than when they got soundly beaten by Old Dominion last year on the yeah. road. Gave up 49 points to Old Dominion in one of the strangest results of the college football season. Uh, as it turns out, Virginia Tech was not the team everyone thought they were coming in the last season. They struggled to even get uh, bowl eligibility. They had to schedule that extra game at the end of the year against Marshall to even salvage a six win and keep their bowl streak alive. Um, so to be an I think the clock's starting to tick on Justin Fuente. He was brought to Blacksburg to take Virginia Tech to the next level and to get them competing again for ACC championships. And obviously he's played in a couple ACC title games that they were, you know, unable to win. But, you know, last year was a big, big step backwards. They, like I said, only won six games, uh, had a lot of roster attrition uh, through last season and through the off season. So to be, you know, Interesting to see where they go from here. I think they have a lot of talent on defense, like you said. I think Ryan Willis is a good quarterback. Uh, they've got some talented players at receiver like Damon Hazleton, uh, Deshaun McLeese at running backs, an effective runner. So they've got some talent. It'll all just depend on if that defense, to me, is able to grow. And smart money is on them growing because Bud Foster has been doing this for a long, long time and is – has long been considered one of the best defensive minds in college football for a reason. You can bet he's worked his ass off all offseason long to correct all the issues they had and that they will take that big step forward this year and they'll be competitive and compete for the Coastal Division again. Yeah, I think that's the the big thing that has me there is you have so many guys returning who are getting their next year in Foster's system and really beginning to you know, develop the intricacies of, of how everything kind of meshes together as well as just the muscle memory of doing it more frequently so that you're not thinking as much on the football field, but you're just doing by the time you actually get between the, the you know, the lines. I think that's really what has me looking at this team as, you know, an obvious bowl team. I don't think they're going to struggle nearly as much as they did last year to get to bowl eligibility. I, I think, um, yes, the clock is ticking a bit on Fuente, but he's also a damn good coach. I, I think we can't, you know, I, I think it would be foolhardy for Hokies fans to really turn on him. Um, even, you know, especially given the fact that the bull streak is still going, like they did what they needed to do last year to get through the growing pains of a young unit and dealing with some injuries that set things back. And, you know, as long as that group continues to take those steps forward, things are exciting in Blacksburg this year. And to be fair, they didn't schedule an FCS opponent. They scheduled a good Marshall team at the end of the season to get bowl eligibility. So you could at least say they earned it. Yeah. Oh, undoubtedly. No, Marshall was great. And as we talked about in our Group of Five preview, Marshall's going to continue to be great this year. Um, so, yeah, it, it, it's it, – it, yeah, I would not knock them for the way that that season went down. Obviously, you can't control weather-related events. 
Um, and we've seen them try to play in terrible weather in Blacksburg before and the predictable results that come from that. So, you know, I think that was the best thing for everybody all around. And in the end, they were able to salvage it in a way that Florida State wasn't, who we'll be talking about in the next uh, segment. I won't go too far there, but the fact is, is Virginia Tech got to keep their bowl streak going, and I think it's going to continue to go this year. Now, whether or not they can push the top two teams in the division um, is another question. Um, It's interesting because the media actually voted Miami second this year after they're coming off of their ACC Coastal win, or, uh, yeah, their ACC Coastal win, and... um, you know, it, it's funny because it's a new look in terms of the head coach, but it's, you know, a familiar face on the sidelines as well. So there should be some continuity in Miami, especially on the defensive side of the ball. Right, yeah, and defensively, the Hurricanes were still really, really good last year. So it wasn't their slippage back to you know, seven and six after winning the Coastal in 2017 and everybody crowning Mark Rick's team as back, uh, finally saying, you know, everyone wants to jump on board and say that U is back. That looked like they were in 2017 until, you know, they lost the last three games of the season, got pretty soundly defeated by um, Clemson and then uh, losing the the Orange Bowl, I believe, to Wisconsin, if I remember right, Zach. Um, You know, and then leading into this year, it was all about, the struggles on offense because defensively you're still looking at in most categories a top five overall unit in college football last season so the hurricanes were still really really good they should still be really really good this year even after losing some key guys like joe jackson like gerald willis up front but bringing back guys like jonathan garvin shaquille quarterman Trayon brady still a really good michael pickney still a really good defense a lot of talent on that side of the ball it's all going to come down to what happens on offense? Can they get more effective quarterback play? Because it didn't matter last year who Mark Rick threw out at quarterback. They were all ineffective, whether it was whether it was Malik Rozier, whether it was Nikosi Perry, whether it was Jaron Williams. They all struggled to kind of get things going. And it looks like the offense is going to be given over to Ohio State transfer Tate Martell, seems to be the leader in the clubhouse to take over the reins. Obviously, Nikosi Perry is still there and competing for the job, uh, but it looks like Martell is going to be that guy. Um, and I think a big reason for optimism um, down there this year is the fact that Diaz was able to bring in Dan Enos as offensive coordinator, who if you saw Enos's work at Alabama last year, in particular the growth that Jalen Hurts showed as a passer uh, when he got opportunities to play last year, it was kind of night and day how much better Hurts looked as a passer after having an offseason and during the season work with Enos. So if Enos can groom, whether it's Martell, Perry, or whoever at quarterback, and get more effective play, then Miami's got the most talented team in the Coastal Division to meet and I think probably should be the favorite depending on how it goes with Martell or whoever at quarterback. Yeah, I I think, again, um, as we've talked about with so many teams in this division, it's going to come down to the offensive line coming together because they are uh, an inexperienced unit in terms of starting. Um, you know, I mentioned Pitt has 37 starts and was the the um, least experienced. I actually missed Miami because they only have 30 starts coming back on that group. So, 
um, wh- whoever ends up taking over as quarterback this year is going to have have to make their way themselves. I think they're going to have to find ways to extend plays by themselves um, because there is going to be some pressure coming through on them. So, um, you know, defensively, I think they're, they're still absolutely fine despite the losses that you mentioned. I think it's also interesting that they were able to poach uh, Trevon Hill from Virginia Tech at defensive end. So, you know, making yourself stronger by making a rival weaker, I think, you know, that addition is going to, to kind of flip things a bit as well. Um, obviously, playing in the Coastal, Miami should, by all rights, have this division locked up every year with the talent that they can pull in. Um, And that's, you know, that's been the big knock on this team. That's why, you know, finally getting to the ACC championship game two years ago was such a big deal. And, you know, it seemed like they're finally back. And then you have the regression last year that, you know, hinge some on injuries. It hinged some on, on, you know, just confusion as well. So, um, and I think, you know, the addition by subtraction of, you know, Rick no longer being there for as, you know, as storied a coach as he was and as much as he pulled off at Georgia, um, and as, you know, as beloved an alumnus as he was for the Hurricanes, I think it just was not a, a great fit for them. And I think kind of moving forward and allowing it to, to get more of that young energy is going to be a great thing. That job really looked like it had worn on Mark Rick last year in particular. Like he just looked tired all season long. Yeah. So I hope he does, you know, enjoy his rest. He's had a long storied career. It's time to move forward for this program. It's time for him to, you know, just kick back. Cause that job really didn't like it stressed him out majorly last year. So yeah. I'll be happy not to have to watch him look, like that on the sidelines this year. Uh, the good news for Miami offensively is they got a lot of skill position talent that we haven't really hit on yet. Yeah. Um, at running back, you got a guy, a couple guys, DJ Dallas, um, who was effective last year uh, behind Travis Homer. And then you've got Lorenzo Lingard, uh, yeah. a rising sophomore, who's a former five-star blue chip recruit who's got a ton of talent. Then a receiver, you got a guy like Jeff Thomas, uh, who was a big recruiting salvage for Manny Diaz because it looked like he was going to to transfer um, and being able to pull him back into the fold was a big boost for the Hurricanes. And then Brevin Jordan at tight ends, one of the uh, really effective young tight ends in the country, a future probably high draft pick. So the Canes have some talent, uh, which isn't a surprise because Miami is Miami still in terms of brand and kids still want to go and play there despite the fact that they haven't been the Miami that everyone was so accustomed to uh, over the last 15 years or so. Um, but I don't know long-term what their prognosis is with Manny Diaz. It's still to be determined. This is his first head coaching gig. Uh, well, I guess second, if you count the two-week stay at Temple. Yeah, to be exactly. Fair. But um, <laughs> so the I think the short-term should be good because he'll still do what he does defensively. They'll still be really effective on that side of the ball. And like you mentioned, they're playing in the Coastal Division, and they should be able to win this division this year. Undoubtedly. And yet at the same time, the media is just that much higher on Virginia. Um, and I think that's really a testament to the the building effort that Bronco Mendenhall and his staff have done there in Charlottesville. Um, 
it really is absolutely unbelievable to see Virginia, you know, being projected as highly as they are. And, um, you know, I think it's a testament to a couple of things. Their defense looked really good last year. You know, they were 31st in defensive S&P+. Um, they have eight guys returning on that defense. 72% of the production is back. And uh, so, obviously, they have all the tools there to continue to be just as good as they were against both the pass and the run. Um, and especially the secondary is just really ridiculous. Um, Bryce Hall is, um, you know, going to be one of the best cornerbacks in the country this year. He broke up two dozen passes last year and, um, you know, could easily do the exact same again. And the fact that you have Darius Bratton on the other side, uh, you know, at the other corner spot just means it's that much harder for teams to to avoid Hall and just focus on the opposite side of the field. So that's really, I think, what excites me about Virginia and makes them look like a real contender in that division. It's kind of amazing, uh, and I guess we shouldn't be surprised because Bronco Mendenhall was so successful at BYU for so long that he's been able to turn Virginia from the laughing stock in the ACC to a team that the media just picked to win the Coastal Division and play for an ACC championship in year four for him. And they've made strides every year. You know, he had a rough go in year one. I think they won two games, mm-hmm. bumped it up to six wins in a bowl game in 2017, and then last year winning eight games uh, and really looking impressive in the bowl win over South Carolina um, when many people thought the Gamecocks would have a pretty easy win and they went in and just steamrolled Will Muschamp's team. Um I kind of soured on Virginia at the end of the year because of how they lost that game to Virginia Tech. You know, they've lost to Virginia Tech, whatever it is, 15 years in a row or something like that now. And it really looked like last year was going to be, you know, the time they were going to be able to finally beat the Hokies. And not only would they have beaten them, they would have kept Virginia Tech from bowl eligibility and ended their bowl streak as long as well as ending their losing streak to their rival as well. Yeah, I think this might be the year that streak does end, though, because this time um, – Virginia gets the Hokies in Charlottesville and that game could have major ramifications on the coastal division at the end of the year. <coughs> One thing working against Virginia is they do have to go to Miami um, in October and that game could ultimately decide which team ends up representing the coastal and gets to, you know, take the customary beating to Clemson in the uh, ACC championship game. That's probably coming for whoever walks out of this division. Um, but they had some key losses, too, on offense. I think defensively they'll be really good. Mendenhall's always kind of hung his hat on that side of the ball. Uh, losing Jordan Ellis, a 1,000-yard runner, is um, someone they're really going to have really struggle to replace. There's no one really there that has a ton of experience. Um, their leading returning rusher from last year, if you don't count Bryce Perkins, was P.K. Keir, who had, eight, what, 80 yards rushing last year. So, yeah. I mean, what ends up happening – um, with the running game. Um, and then Alamid Zacchaeus, who was one of the most exciting all-purpose players in college football last year, losing him and having to replace that production will be big. But the big thing is returning Bryce Perkins, who was one of the most effective dual-threat quarterbacks in college football last year, threw for nearly 2,700 yards, rushed for 900 more. I believe he was third in the ACC Um in all-purpose yards last season. So him being back, I think, is what's pushing the media to 
to pick them because they have the settled quarterback situation, because they have a talented defense, um, and because they returned three starters up front on the offensive line as well, which will be big. I think they're neck and neck with Miami for me. I don't know if they're going to be able to get over the top, but man, it would be it would be fun to see Virginia get over the top and play for an ACC championship. And what a testament to what Mendenhall's building in Charlottesville. Yeah, he's really you know turned that program back to where Al Groh had them for so many years. Um, you know, not necessarily competitive every year. Virginia is never going to be a, a you know, year over year powerhouse there. Um, And it's something we've talked about with other programs as well. You look at like a lot of these programs in this division, especially have interesting um, academic standards. And uh, you know, it's not easy to get into a school like Virginia. It's not easy to get into a school like Georgia tech or North Carolina or Duke as your average student. So, you know, that that obviously has some of the issues of recruiting, but, um, you know, Mendenhall obviously knows how to deal with that. He was at a place like BYU for as long as he was, where recruiting is just as hard and it has its own unique challenges, um, you know, especially when, there where you're negotiating around um, Mormon missions on top of recruiting. So I think in, in the end, um, I've... It, it, as somebody who's grown up a Wyoming fan, I hated Mendenhall for a lot of years because I respected him as much as I did as a coach, you know, or as a good a coach as he is. And uh, it's nice seeing him out of, you know, the mountain states and not playing Wyoming as frequently anymore because I, I think he's just continuing to build Virginia Tech into a consistent bowl team at the very least. And, yeah, I think if there's any year that they're really going to break through, it could very well be this one. So on that note, just to kind of give my breakdown of how I think this division is going to shake out, I do think Virginia does steal it away this year. And I actually think Virginia Tech's going to finish ahead of Miami. I'm not convinced by Miami's um, offensive situation. The talent is all there, I think. Um, you know, the coaching staff is there to have the defense be as good or if not better than it was last year. But that offense just has me really skeptical. It's a lot of individual talent and no really coherent philosophy that I've seen so far. Um, fourth in the division, I'm going to put Duke ahead of Pitt. And then I, I I think, you know, North Carolina and Georgia Tech, whoever wins that game between the two of them is going to be the one that finishes sixth. Um, so, yeah, um, just to kind of cop out there, uh, I don't know if they could even be tied for sixth and the tiebreaker would be the one that split them. But, yeah, I could see those teams being one and eight, two and seven in division play this year or in conference play this year. Yeah, I've got Miami winning the Coastal. I'm a little bit higher on what I think Danny knows can accomplish with that offense. And if the offense comes together with what they have defensively, they're the most well-rounded team in the ACC to me. But I've got Virginia right there with them. I think Virginia is going to finish second, but it would not surprise me in the least um, if Bryce Perkins elevates them uh, to the ACC championship game. I've got Virginia Tech finishing third. I've also got Duke ahead of Pitt at number four with Pitt coming in fifth, sliding back to fifth after winning the Coastal last year. And I've got North Carolina six, Georgia Tech seven, but that's a toss-up too. 
Awesome. Yeah, I, I think really it's, you know, which one of the three at the top do you like most is really the question this year with the the ACC Coastal. On that note, we're going to take a quick break, everybody. When we return, we'll be talking about the ACC Atlantic race and whether or not anybody has a chance in hell of catching Clemson. So stay tuned. Welcome back from the break, everybody, to the Saturday Blitz podcast. We're here talking about the ACC this week. Last uh, segment, we talked about the ACC Coastal, so now it's time to break down the ACC Atlantic teams. Once again, we're breaking these teams down in the order that they finished in the recent ACC media preseason poll. So we're going to start off with Louisville. Uh, what can you really say about Louisville? Um, they obviously have a great returning defense, um, at least in terms of the amount of talent they have returning back. Whether or not we can call that a great defense, I guess, is another question. Uh, but then, you know, really the the big question marks are, how does this team adjust to a new head coach? It's something we talked about at the bottom of, you know, the Coastal as well, in terms of just you know, shifting to new identities. I personally really think Scott Satterfield is a great fit for this team. You know, the former Appalachian State head coach steps in and, um, you know, he's done a great job in the past um, turning around App State once they moved to, to the football bowl subdivision from 1AA. And, um, you know, after that, that early transition, they had a rough start of it, but within a year and a half it, of his, his taking over the position, we just saw the, the Mountaineers become a contender once again. I think we could see something similar here with the Cardinals. I think he's the right coach to come in for a rebuild, but I don't think, you know, given what's there in the cupboard. Yes, they have a lot of returning talent, but whether or not that's actually the talent that's going to take them over the top is the next question. So I think it's really going to fall to the next couple recruiting cycles for Louisville to, to get back out of the hole that they fell into during the second Petrino tenure. Right. Um, I think everyone knew life after Lamar Jackson was going to be tough. Yeah. For Louisville, I don't think anyone thought it was going to be as tough as it was last year. They went from being a competitive team to completely bottoming out last year, just torpedoing down the standings, finishing 2-10, and ten, winless in the ACC, and just not just getting, you know, pillaged defensively because they were bad defensively. They also were bad offensively, which has always been Bobby Petrino's calling card, has been able to you know, put together effective offenses, but he lost every bit of his touch last year um, and ultimately lost his post um, during his second go-around at Louisville. So I think I agree with you, Scott Satterfield's the right guy for the job. He's a very good coach. I'm surprised he didn't uh, – he was the guy I thought North Carolina would target uh, yeah. when that vacancy was open, so I was a little bit surprised that he didn't get more play there. But I think it was a really smart move by Louisville because you've got a guy who's proven – uh, to be an effective football coach, to produce a winning team at Appalachian State at the FBS level um, to boot. Uh, you know, it's going to be a tough transition, though. He's going to be a lot of – a lot of it reminds me of Georgia Tech in that it's going to be a multi-year rebuild. They don't have the big offensive philosophy change that Georgia Tech's enduring, 
but they might have more of a culture change than Georgia Tech might even have because it seemed like that locker room and everything surrounding the Cardinals last year was poisonous. So it'll really take a culture shift for Satterfield to get Louisville back to respectability and maybe even contention in the ACC. And they certainly have the potential to do that and be in the upper echelon of teams in the conference. Um, and I think ultimately he could get them there. It's not going to be this year. It'll be very difficult for them to climb their way out of the cellar. Yeah. I, and I'm, you know, I, I think that really speaks. We've talked about it with uh, second chance coaches and we mentioned it with Mac Brown and yeah, Bobby Petrino in his second go around just was not effective in the least. Um, you know, and I, I shouldn't say that I should qualify that he was effective when he had Lamar Jackson and, um, yeah. that he lucked into a generational talent. Exactly. When you're able to get somebody who can win a Heisman trophy at a place like Louisville, um, and you, you get the opportunity to coach that player, they're going to make you look good. And I think we've, you know, we've seen similar things, uh, you know, with like Robert Griffin III was another one who was like that generational talent who elevated a program far beyond its traditional expectations. Now, you know, I, I think with Louisville, um, I, I'm with you. It's going to be a multi-year issue. I, I think even just being able to be competitive against the spread would be huge this year. Last year they went one in 10 against the spread and it was like Vegas kept lowering it and, and thinking, you know, lowering and lowering their expectations and Louisville kept meeting those diminished expectations <laughs> of, of, you know, absolute horribleness. I, I was going to say mediocrity, but we can't even use the word mediocrity no. for where Louisville was last year. No, um, that would be an insult to mediocre teams. No, exactly. And I think, you know, I think what's interesting as well last year is you also had the whole swirl around the program at the beginning of the year with the Papa John situation and taking that name off the stadium and, you know, We've seen well-heeled donors at certain schools kind of make or break programs, and it'll be really interesting to see if Louisville can, you know, they parlayed that association into, you know, great new facilities and getting a lot of benefit out of it. Um, but at the same time, it all they also parlayed it into ACC membership, which they should be able to use that as their next stepping stone more than, you know, well-heeled boosters. Um, because that's only going to take you so far as well. And I think that was another thing that was kind of holding the team back and sort of the, like the shock of everything that went down with that, or, you know, through last year um, can kind of be put in the rear view mirror now. Yeah, I think that's fair. I, like I said, it's 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 a culture change as much of it is as a philosophical change uh, at Louisville, and he's definitely got his work cut out for him. But I think we're both pretty high on the long term outlook for the Cardinals uh, with his leadership. Totally. Well, yeah, Louisville is. Uh, yeah, it, it's probably not going to be their year. I don't see him becoming bowl eligible. Another team that. Um, you know, the media in general was really low on this year was Wake Forest. Personally, I don't see why they're that 
low on this team. You know, they've, they went seven and six last year. They, you know, they're back. They, they're, they've got the potential to get back to a bowl game again. Um, even though they lost six starters on defense, most of the actual production from that unit is back. Um, you know, you've got a really good secondary, um, and that group could be even better if they get any sort of push from their front seven. So I think in general, you know, Wake Forest is probably the type of team that's going to lose most of the games they're supposed to lose. They're the type of team that's going to win most of the games they're supposed to win. And as long as they can, you know, hit on a couple of those toss-ups um, and I think be in a good situation by the time they reach November, since they do have road trips to Virginia Tech, Clemson, and Syracuse backloaded into the schedule. Um, I think if they can move beyond that, uh, or, you know, be in a good position by the time they get there, even stealing one of those games, most likely against a, a Syracuse, I would guess, but, you know, um, it could be any number of them. Uh also, Virginia Tech is another one that they could potentially poach off and, and you know, play up to the competition. So, yeah. I or think, Clemson. Or Clemson. It could be. Clemson has, you know, we haven't seen a Clemsoning in a while. So. Yeah. It, it, that's not going to happen. It, it's not going to happen, but we haven't <laughs> seen a Clemsoning in a while. We It feels like we're way overdue at this point. So, we'll talk about that more in a bit. <laughs> Yeah, I. it's kind of interesting because it always feels like Wake Forest is picked near the bottom, but they've gone to three straight bowl games now under Dave Clawson. He's really got things moving forward there. And this is another program that is difficult to win at. You know, Jim Grobe obviously had a lot of success in Winston-Salem and proved that it can be done at Wake Forest. But that doesn't make it any less challenging. He did a really good job. It's a challenging job in a difficult division. Um that makes it, especially when Florida State and Louisville aren't, you know, as bad as they were each last season, it makes this division even more challenging for the Demon Deacons. So I think we should applaud what he's been able to accomplish there because, you know, this is a team that's competitive every single year now, um, and they should be right around bowl eligibility again. This is a bit of a rebuilding year, though. For them, um, I think, because they lost, you know, a lot of guys up front. Losing Greg Dortch uh, at wide receiver was huge to early entry in the NFL draft. If he had come back, then you're talking about a team that really could be kind of a spoilery type of team in the coast. I don't think a team that would – or in the Atlantic, sorry. I don't think a team that would really be competing for – to challenge Clemson or anything, but maybe a team that could pull off a couple upsets and swing the tide of either division. Um but I think you hit on a really good point was the schedule. What a brutal end of the season to three of your last four games being on the road against upper echelon teams in the conference like Virginia Tech, Clemson, and Syracuse. Like That's brutal. So they've got to probably already be at five or six wins getting into that game, those games to even have a shot at bowl eligibility. So that's really tough. The ACC didn't do them any favors with that conference slate. No, I don't see them stealing – more than one of those games. So yeah, you'd have to be at five wins and then you'd have to be crossing your fingers that all, you know, you're competitive and the ball bounces right for you in one of those games. And, um, but yeah, I think it's more important that they're at, you know, they're at six and three entering or, you know, they're at six and 
you know, six wins entering November. Yeah, I think that's that'll definitely be the key. But I have, they definitely have the talent to do it. Um, it'll be interesting at quarterback, I think, because yeah. they got two guys who were both effective last year um, starting. So which guy is going to be um, the guy who wins the actual job? You know, because Sam Hartman was the guy last year until he broke his leg and then Jamie Newman took over. And then Newman was really effective. They went three and one in his four starts. So which guy kind of steps up and takes the reins this year? Sometimes, you know, the old saying goes, you got two quarterbacks, you got no quarterbacks. I don't know if that holds water anymore um, in 2019 with the way college we've seen college football over the last uh, several years. Uh, but it will be interesting to see who gets that job. But it is nice knowing for Clawson that he's got two guys he can trust to lead his offense. Totally, yeah. It's really going to come down to which one, you know, steps up and does take charge as as the starter. Another team that's got some question marks around their situation is Boston College, who was selected fifth by the, the media in, in the preseason poll. Um, you know, this is another team that went, uh, earned seven wins last year. Um, and you know, at the same time, there are some real question marks around this team. I think especially on defense, they just lost a ton of players on defense this year. Um, three starters back, um, to a group that, you know, was really continuing to, you know, start to grow, um, and uh, it, at the very least, they get uh, an easier schedule in terms of teams that were really um, pa- efficient as passing teams. And I think that's going to be a big thing for them, given that they're basically replacing the entire secondary. That's just huge. I think given, you know, ACC opponents, it's kind of a boon that some of these teams have quarterback questions because this team definitely has secondary questions. Right. Yeah. Up front too on defense, it'll be a struggle after losing Zach Allen, who was one of the most productive players in the history of the program. So replacing him is going to be big. What they do have going for them though, Zach on offense is bringing back one of the more effective quarterback running back duos in the conference in Anthony Brown and AJ Dillon. Uh, A.J. Dillon broke onto the scene as a true freshman a couple years ago and lit it up and then had another 1,000-yard year as a sophomore despite battling through some injuries. So getting both of those guys back will be huge uh, for Adazio's team. But I think it will all come down to can they take a step forward defensively because they weren't a good defensive team last year despite having talented guys like a Zach Allen on the defensive line, like a Hamp Cheevers at cornerback. They still weren't a very good defense last year, which is, you know, again, another kind of a surprise because Adazio's always kind of been able to find those kind of field those defenses that really make it tough for opposing offenses to move the ball. Um, so I, I don't know if they're going to be able to make enough strides defensively, like you said, with only three starters back and a lot of young players kind of filling out the two deep to really take a step forward. I think they're probably still going to be a bowl team, yeah. but I don't know if they're going to be able to to jump up above that or not. I think they'll be probably right around six wins, um, and it could come down to 
you know, the finish of the season, they might need to pull an upset over Notre Dame at the end of the year or go on the road and beat Pittsburgh in the final game to find that sixth win. Yeah, I, I think that's you're probably right about that. I mean, obviously, the beginning of the year opening right away with Virginia Tech um, does them no favors. Um, especially when you're starting to try to find your identity at an early point, having to, to confront a defense like that is no easy thing. You know, the next two games, they get FCS Richmond, they get to, to host Kansas, um, and then they uh, they play at Rutgers. To, and uh, I think those three games, they could get to 4-1 and one by the end of September, you know, considering they're probably going to lose that Virginia Tech game. But Richmond, Kansas, Rutgers, and even Wake Forest are all potential wins on the schedule. That Rutgers game is really the type of toss-up game that I think is could determine which one of the two get to bowl eligibility this year. It's going to be a game that um, doesn't seem important in September, but when we look back on it, it will have had more significance than we really ascribe to it among the glut of games that happen in week five. So. Yeah, I agree. I, I, I think, you know, and if they make the upgrades defensively, if they're able to kind of push forward on that side of the ball, then Boston college is a team that I could see easily jumping into the discussion for um, second or third place behind Clemson. I mean, I don't think they're going to challenge Clemson. I spoiler alert. No one to me is going to challenge Clemson yeah. really in the division. Um, which, you know, isn't really a spoiler because I think everyone already knew that. But even still, I if things go the way they could go, then maybe this team does take a bigger leap forward. Uh, but I, I think they'll probably stick around six wins, maybe seven, uh, depending on, like you said, how that Wake Forest game goes. Yeah, I, I well, and I think the back half of their schedule really doesn't set up well to get any higher than that. Obviously, you know, you close out October. We talked about a tough schedule at the end of the year for Wake Forest. It's the exact same for Boston College. End October with at Clemson, start November at Syracuse, host Florida State, at Notre Dame, at Pittsburgh. Really that at Pittsburgh game could be there. Do you get to six wins? Do you get to seven wins? Right. Yeah, I agree. Well, yeah, I, I think that, you know, kind of looking at those three teams on the bottom, however people want to sort them out, those are probably going to be Louisville is probably last this year, I would say, given just all the question marks and taking on a new system um, at the same time. We'll see what happens with Satterfield. He's a good enough coach that he could take that level of talent and just start to to get it into shape right away. But, you know, I, I think below Clemson, since I think we're both pretty much up front about the fact that we're talking about Clemson last year, um, <laughs> you have a, you know, that trio of teams at the bottom of the division. Then you have a trio of teams in the middle where, depending on what happens, things could go one way or another. And NC State definitely fits that bill. Um, they're a team that this year is really the the reset on offense for them. They lose a lot of players on that side of the ball. And so um, getting things right there is what's going to determine how close they can get into contention among those you know teams 
fighting for second behind the Tigers. Yeah, I think it's kind of a rebuilding year for NC State. It wouldn't surprise me if they end up in that bottom three of the of the Atlantic Division because, like you said, offensively it's a huge rebuild. You know, you lose Ryan Finley, who's one of the more decorated passers in school history, uh, was very effective uh, for Dave Doreen's team. Uh, but then you also lose uh, Reggie Gillespie at running back, a thousand yard runner. You lose two thousand yard receivers and Jacoby Myers and Kelvin Harmon. That's a lot of turnover on that side of the ball at the skill positions, not to mention, you know, three got to replace three starters on the offensive line. So it really could be a rebuilding year for NC State. He's they're recruiting well enough. Dave Doreen's got a good enough recruiting background that they will have talent there, but it'll be young, unproven talent. And that can usually go either way. You know, they can grow quickly uh, and be competitive or they can suffer growing pains. And NC State could suffer a pretty big drop from last year's nine win team. And I think that could be where we're headed. Uh, I could see the Wolfpack really scratching and clawing for bowl eligibility this year. That be could be a real challenge for them. Um, you know, really coming down to they on the on the flip side of the tough ending schedules, they finish with Louisville, Georgia Tech, and North Carolina uh, to finish the year. So those could be those are three very winnable games, and I think NC State will probably be able to scratch out um, bowl eligibility because of that, but. And the fact that they get pretty three pretty easy out-of-conference games sandwiched between going on the road and playing West Virginia this year. They get East Carolina, Western Carolina, and Ball State. Yeah. So the schedule sets up enough for them to pull out six wins, but I still think it's going to be – I still think this is a team that's going to shift below the top four in the conference while someone else from that bottom three jumps them. I think that's that's an interesting take. Um and given how much they're replacing on offense, as you mentioned, you know, you lose thousand yard rusher, several thousand yard receivers, you lose a, a multi year experience talent like Ryan Finley at quarterback, you know, lose three of your five offensive linemen. Um, they are by far the least experienced offensive line in the entire division. And, uh, second behind only Miami in the entire conference. So it's, yeah, it's definitely a rebuilding year all around for this group. Um, There are some signs of promise on defense, at least, Um, even though they did regress from 2017 to 2018, fell 16 spots in S&P plus. And, um, you know, it's really going to, it's going to fall to that unit to sort of pick its weight back up and, and, become a top 40 unit again for NC State to really do much more than six or seven wins like you were talking about. I think having, you know, those two chunks of games at the beginning of the year and the end of the year, you know, this slate with a couple of, uh, you know, group of five teams and an FCS team and then getting effectively what could be the three weakest teams in, in the entire conference really does benefit them and does allow for at least six wins anything less than that and you've really got to start wondering whether Dave Doran is a much more of a future at NC State even with the fact that it is a rebuilding year six wins shouldn't be a question yeah no I agree they he should have that program to the point now that really six wins is a rebuilding year and they don't slip much further than that totally 
Well, and yeah, I think another que- you know team that obviously has some questions is the one whose bull streak ended last year after you know having the nation's longest bull eligibility streak. Uh, Willie Taggart's Florida State Seminoles could not pull it off last year and get that sixth win. Um, they obviously have some of the, the you know most returning talent on both sides of the ball in the entire division. Um, the big question mark for them, offensive line, uh, they just did not play well last year. They have talent coming back. They only have uh, Alec Eberle leaving um, at center, but otherwise they have the unit back. The question mark is, can they be better than they were last year? Um, you know, the teams were able to get a ton of stops behind the line of scrimmage when they tried to run the ball. And, um, you know, against the sack, they they just were not able to, to keep Florida State's quarterbacks protected well enough. So that's really going to be the question mark there for me because I think, you know, they obviously recruit the talent to be able to to make waves, especially at skill positions. And, you know, the defensive um, side of the ball, you look from, you know, all the way through the interior all at every level, and they've got a strong spine. That defense should be really good this year, this year, and this year, and able, and able to. Um, so it, it really does depend on how well that offensive line comes together and produces better results than it was able to manage last year. Yeah, uh, that's the big, big thing is the offensive line. I'm glad you brought that up early because I don't want to take a minute to rail against Jimbo Fisher because Willie Taggart's the guy who got all the blame for Florida State's 5-7 and seven season. Everyone quickly forgot because Fisher had so much success in year one at Texas A&M that Taggart inherited a mess in Tallahassee. Sure, the recruiting was still highly rated, but the offensive line recruiting had really fallen off in recent years. There was no depth on the line. There was not a lot of talent on the offensive line. And Fisher got out of Tallahassee knowing that. And everyone likes to forget that Florida State was barely a bowl team the year before. We're talking about a team that was 6-6 and in the regular season, had to schedule the emergency uh, December first weekend of December game to even get bowl eligibility to keep that streak alive in Fisher's final season in Tallahassee. So I want that to be known going forward, yeah. going in because Taggart's got a lot of, you know, unfair criticism. Some of it has been fair because he, it is inexcusable at a program like Florida state to miss a bowl game because of the talent there but they were a disaster on the offensive line last year. DeAndre Francois had no time to throw. They have one of the best, most talented running backs in the country in Cam Akers, and he was held to four yards per carry, only ended up rushing for a little over 700 yards because there was just no holes. He was constantly getting harassed in the backfield before he could even make it to the line of scrimmage. 
So that's first and foremost the biggest thing. And I think one of the more intriguing offseason hires in terms of coordinators was Taggart uh, bringing over Kendall Bryles yeah. to run his offense. Maybe an offense now that's maybe a little more quick quick twitch, get the ball out quickly to the boundary, get the ball into the hands of your playmakers in space, and maybe that mitigates the struggles of the offensive line at least a little bit because they don't have to protect for as long um, while uh, while James Blackman's looking to throw the ball downfield. Um so, you know, obviously Francois is gone and Blackman takes over, it appears. They obviously brought in Wisconsin transfer Alex Hornibrook as well. And one of the more curious transfer decisions of the offseason, considering it does look like it's Blackman's job yeah. to lose. Um, so I think Florida State will be improved. I think I'd like to pump the brakes. I know a lot of people are wanting to predict the Seminoles to be the Seminoles again and be a team that's competitive in the ACC. I don't think they're quite going to get there. I do think you're going to look at a team that gets to seven or eight wins, and it's enough to inspire confidence that Taggart has the program moving in the right direction. But he's got a lot of heat, too. We've talked about this several times on this podcast, that if things go south again, two, it might be two and done for Taggart. If, they're, if they miss a bowl game for a second year in a row, they, I could very easily see Florida State looking to make a change. Yeah. No, definitely. And I think if – you know, things go sour right away against Boise State in that game in Jacksonville, as it really could right at the, you know, the first stretch of the year. Um, there's not a lot of, there. there's not a lot of rope on that leash for Taggart. He's not being given a lot of leeway. And I really do think that um, if they can't get past the Broncos, you know, and that's a really good Boise State team. Let's face it. It, w- it would be irrational to say that Florida State should just automatically be able to cram it down their throat and obliterate Boise State. But that doesn't happen anymore. Boise State is too good a team for that to happen. And so it, it is, you know, it'd be irrational, but I think that's the type of game that could really swing the fan base just absolutely completely against him. And the fact that it's coming in week one makes that especially dangerous just for morale for the rest of the team. Because if it, you know, if they can't, you know, get that turnaround right away, and if, you know, it's just going to make things that much more difficult for them moving forward. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. And better teams in Florida State have foolishly thought that they could bully Boise State and had yeah. the tables quickly flipped. Um, so they should be going in there expecting a fight. If I was Willie Taggart, I would want to build my guys as the underdogs. Oh, yeah. Game to build, um, you know, to piss them off even. Like, hey, you know, you you guys aren't as good as this group over here. Prove me wrong. Yep. That's how you should be billing it. You should not be billing the Knowles as the favorite in that game. Because to me, and I know Vegas, I think, has Florida State favored by a few points. Uh, but to me, Boise State's favorite in that game. I would take Boise State right now looking at both of those teams. Oh, yeah. Um, and obviously it's tough to prognosticate without seeing either on the field. But Boise State, to me, is the better team at the moment. I, I agree 100% there. Um, but, you know, I, I think if they don't, you know, if they don't pull it off, you start to get the, oh, geez, here we go again sort of scenario where um, – you know, things are really starting to spiral quickly. Things are, um, and that's really, that really comes back to the morale issue. And, 
it, it's incumbent on Taggart and his staff to just keep this team on as much of an even keel as possible. And like you said, really sort of focused on the next game on the schedule, not looking ahead, not getting ahead of themselves, um, and not really thinking more of themselves than they are. Because they are a team who's, you know, a legitimate third or fourth in the ACC Coastal. Right. And, yeah, and I agree. And that's not a bad place to be. It's not a it's not a peak Florida State place to be, but it is a realistic place to be selling your team on. You know, we're a good team, but don't discount anybody we're playing this year. Right. Well, I say enough about the Knowles. Let's move on to real ACC contenders and Syracuse. How weird is that to say? Yeah. I mean, Dino Babers has done a great job with this Orange squad, and um, I think even with the fact that it's life after Eric Dungy for this team, um, it's they've got a lot of the tools in place to just continue to sustain success. Um, a lot of talent back on defense. The offensive line is going to be really good for whoever takes over at quarterback and steps into to Dungy's shoes. And, um, you know, whoever does step in at quarterback is going to have players around them as well. They're going to have decent talent around them to be playing with. I'm really excited about Syracuse's prospects this year. Um, You know, they went 10-3 and last year, and I I don't think that they're going to be pushing Syracuse for the title. But I could see their game against one another being really close, and we have seen Syracuse push Clemson in the past on the field. So let's, let's not, let's not just immediately discount that. Um, I'll put it this way. I think some team wearing some shade of orange is going to win the ACC Atlantic this year. Right. And Syracuse has been the biggest threat to Clemson over the last couple of years. Cause you remember two years ago, Syracuse upset Clemson in the carrier dome and they get, you know, the Tigers have to make the trip to the Carrier Dome this year. And then last year, Syracuse went to Death Valley and nearly, nearly upset the established order of college football and almost beat um, Clemson. Had they won that game against Clemson, it would have been Syracuse playing um, in the ACC championship game against Pittsburgh and Clemson left out in the cold. It would have been interesting to see what the pollsters or what the um, playoff committee would have done with Clemson at that point as a non-division champion. We've obviously seen Alabama make it to the playoff as a non-division champion before. So it had been interesting to see. But, I mean, we were a player two away. You remember Trevor Lawrence got hurt in that game, yeah. and they had to bring in what was their third-string quarterback um, at the time to take the snaps. And, you know, he led a drive to win the game at the end. But the season almost was a lot different. Like, I, it, it's a fun thought experiment to what would have happened if Syracuse would have won that game last year. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I you know, obviously losing Eric Dungy is a big loss. But Tommy DeVito is a really talented player. Uh, who's likely to step in at quarterback for this team. And Babers has recruited at a high enough level that they've got guys coming in to fill the spots for their key losses from last year. They have a lot, a lot of talent. It's crazy to think of Syracuse as a double-digit win team like they were last year. Um, but they they absolutely were. And they are, the to me, the biggest threat to Clemson. Um, in the ACC this year, not just in the Atlantic, but in the ACC overall. They're the biggest threat to take the crown, and a big reason for that is the fact that they do get Clemson at home, and they get them early in the season. You know, it's a week three game against the Tigers when 
you know, Clemson could easily be sleepwalking through the first early parts of the season because, you know, and we'll get to this more in a minute, um, you know, Clemson does have to feel like they are better than everyone else in the conference because they've been so dominant in the ACC in recent years, and there hasn't really been a team. I don't think they seriously look at Syracuse as a challenge. I don't. I don't think many great teams would view a team like Syracuse because they're Syracuse. Even yeah. though it's a team that won 10 games last year, you still have the name value of Syracuse. I don't think Clemson views them as a legit threat. The week before that, though, Clemson plays Texas A&M at home, and that could be kind of an emotionally draining game. You remember last year A&M almost pulled off the upset in College Station over the Tigers. So coming off of that game and then going right back to having to play a a talented Syracuse team in week three, maybe Clemson's on upset alert in that game. Um, And then I wonder what happens if Clemson does lose that one game because their schedule isn't that challenging from the rest of the year. There's not a lot of opportunities for statement wins. Um, their statement wins will have to come in September when they play A&M and Syracuse. So I don't think the Orange, I I don't want to go so far as to say they're going to win uh, the Atlantic division, but it would be hilarious to me if Syracuse somehow stole the ACC away from Clemson this year. Um, I do think they're second. They're the second best team in the Atlantic and probably to me the second best team overall in the ACC, but I still think that second place is a distant second place. I think it's fair. I mean, just given the level that we've seen Clemson play at in recent years. Um, but, in you know, the other thing that I really like about uh, Clemson this year is that defensive front. Uh, you know, Alton Robinson and Kendall Coleman bookending that line are a couple of really strong defensive ends. And I think, you know, both of them could really step up and um, terrorize some quarterbacks up to and including Trevor Lawrence this year. So, um, as you mentioned, he had a rough game against the Orange last year, and I think that could very well happen again, given how good that defense is, both up front and in the back. You know, its secondary is just really loaded. So, Right. So, yeah, Clemson's the biggest threat, but or Syracuse is the biggest threat, but Clemson's still the top dog. Uh, I think we can probably both agree on that for the ACC. And the Tigers are not just the top dog in the ACC at this point, but they're the top dog in college football. Oh, yeah. they I'll get it out of the way so you don't have to rub it in my face. They bullied, battered, and defeated Alabama pretty soundly in the national championship game. A quick aside to that, though, Bill Connolly wrote up something really interesting about that game, how statistically of an anomaly it was. I don't want to make excuses or anything, but it wasn't as big of a blowout as the score would indicate if you really break down the actual like advanced stats for the game. Alabama was better than Clemson on first and second down, and then third downs it was just a disaster for Alabama and Clemson feasted. Yeah. And you have to give credit to a guy like Trevor Lawrence who picked apart Alabama's defense on third down all night long and really shifted the tide. I don't think that the gap between those two teams is that big. And I think we could be on our way, well on our way to Clemson, Alabama five at this point for the fifth straight year in the playoff. Uh, but the Tigers are far and away to me the best team in the ACC. I don't think they have a lot of competition. I think Syracuse is good, but Syracuse is a step below the upper echelon teams. Um, It will be interesting with Clemson because while they return just a ridiculous amount of talent on offense, obviously with Lawrence, who might be the Heisman Trophy favorite, uh, Travis Etienne, who was a 1,600-yard rusher last year, and then 
a group of receivers who rival Alabama for just the most talented in the country, at least in the top two, when you look at T. Higgins and Justin Ross, who yeah. are just huge outside targets, who Trevor Lawrence, and having a guy like Lawrence to throw to them is a freaking cheat code. Uh, but really the interesting thing that I think people are ignoring for Clemson this year because of all the talent coming back on offense is defensively they lost a lot. Like yeah. a big boost for Clemson last year was the fact that guys like, you know, Cleland Farrell and Christian Wilkins returned um, for their junior, redshirt junior and senior seasons, respectively, to try to win a national championship. They got that leadership boost and that boost of just dominant defensive line play. And then we saw that on display in the national championship game, you know, with Wilkins um, and Farrell kind of dominating up front. And not to mention Dexter Lawrence, who didn't play in the playoff, obviously, but was a monster all season for Clemson. Losing those three guys up front is a those are huge shoes to feel, right? Like yeah. I, I know they've recruited at a ridiculous pace, but that's a lot of talent they've got to replace up front. And that's not even mentioning Austin Bryant either, who was effective um, on the end. So they're replacing all four all four starters up front on the defensive line. They return a lot of talent in the secondary, which will help obviously. Um, but I don't know. I, I think Clemson's still the ACC favorite. I will. I would be surprised if they didn't end up in the playoff again, but I don't know if this Clemson team is going to reach the level of last season's Clemson team. I'd really, it's all going to depend on how the defense, a young defense kind of grows together early in the season. And like I said, while ago, they don't have a lot of time to get it together defensively either. Cause you know, week two, Texas A&M comes to town week three, they have to go to Syracuse. Yeah. I think those two games are really just dangerous on their schedule. Um, Either one of them could be an upset bid. I would be... I think Clemson, yes, is obviously the the top team in this conference. I, I think you would be hard-pressed to make a case otherwise. And I think we look at that defense, and yes, only four starters are returning overall from last year's defense. Only half of the defensive production is back. But at the same time, it kind of reminds me of how we were talking about Washington in the Pac-12 preview and the fact that, you know, we've seen them lose a lot of talent to the NFL each of the past couple years. And each year they've seemed to manage to just elevate their game despite that um, and, and just stay on a high pace. I'd be really shocked to see Clemson take much of a defensive dip, even having lost that much. Uh and, you know, I think a big part of that is the fact that they get to play against a lot of ACC teams that just don't have the depth of talent to exploit something like a less experienced defense. So in that regard, you know, if I'm, you know, ranking this division, Clemson is obviously number one. Um, and I, I really do think Syracuse is number two. I, I um... I would put, see, I want Florida State to finish third, if only for Willie Taggart's sake. Um, I could also see NC State overtaking them this year and dropping the the Seminoles to fourth. I think Wake Forest is going to be better than Boston College this year, Um, and I think a lot of that, again, hinges on just such an experienced offensive line for that group, and bringing up the rear is Louisville. Yeah, I think it's – everyone can probably agree Clemson won Louisville seventh. 
yeah. right? So I think it's really filling in that gap between two and six at this point. So I got Clemson one. I also agree with Syracuse two. I've got Wake Forest jumping up to third. Though. Wow. I think the Demon Deacons are going to take a step forward again. But I think three through six is so crowded, Zach, in any order – I wouldn't be surprised. I think Clemson-Syracuse finished one, two, but three through six is kind of wide open. The number three team is probably going to be a seven-win team this year, to be honest, um, a team that's probably 500. It wouldn't surprise me if three through six are all roughly tied um, yeah. in the divisional standings and it all comes down to wacky tiebreakers to who technically finishes ahead of the other. But I've got Wake Forest third. I've got Florida State slotting in fourth. I feel a little more comfortable having them kind of in the middle um, than putting them in the top three. So I'm kind of with you there. Uh, number five, I've got Boston College, and I've got NC State slipping to sixth um, in the Atlantic. I think all those teams are bowl teams, though. I think they'll all scratch out six wins, and like I said, any order between them would not surprise me, and then obviously Louisville finishing seventh. Totally. Well, we're going to take one last break, everybody, and then we're going to talk about our projections for the ACC championship game. Uh, whether any of these teams have a shot at landing a college football playoff spot or even a New Year's Six bowl bid. And then we're going to offer up our offensive and defensive player of the year projections. So stay tuned. Welcome back for the final segment of the Saturday Blitz podcast this week, everybody. We've been talking about the ACC and broke down each of the divisions in our first two segments. So now it's time to talk about how things are going to wrap up in this conference. We were looking at the conference championship game this year. Uh, both of us have Clemson in the in the conference championship game. John projected Miami to be playing against them. Well, I have Virginia taking on the Tigers. Um, how do you think? How do you think Clemson Miami would end, John? Do you think Miami even has a chance of like covering the spread against the Tigers? You know, I, it all depends on what the how the season goes and what that spread ends up being. If Miami wins the the Coastal because the Coastal sucks and they end up winning being a Pittsburgh like team entering there, then maybe the spread's astronomically high, and then it might not even matter because Clemson still might cover it because uh, they'll definitely be up for a game against Miami. Um, I don't think anybody that comes out of the Coastal Division this year, whether it's Miami, Virginia, Virginia Tech, what have you, has a real shot at dethroning Clemson. I think we both discussed already that we think Syracuse is the team that has the best opportunity in the ACC to steal the crown away, and that would be in Clemson's own division. Clemson, if it's Clemson, Miami, Clemson, Virginia, whatever, Clemson rolls, wins the ACC again, running away, and gets another berth in the college football playoff. I think you're probably right on that. Um I think Virginia might have a bit of a better chance to push uh, Clemson in in the title game than Miami, and I think that's part of why I I ended up projecting the Cavaliers first. Um, I think even a team like Virginia Tech with their defense, if that defense really does break through in another year in Foster's system, would have a possible chance but yeah, let's let's just be honest, everybody. We don't need to belabor this point that much. Clemson's going to be coming out of the ACC this year as a champion. I think they're, out of any one of the conferences, Power 5, Group of 5, whatever, this is probably the most lockdown race for one team. Um, 
I, 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 I don't know how you feel about that and if you feel that there's one that might even be more of a solid lock, John, but I, I, I think Clemson is it for me. No, gun to my head, you had to – someone was forcing me to pick one conference champion right now, right here, right now, and it, I would pick Clemson to win the ACC. Um, and it all depends on health, obviously. You know, you never know. If something happened to Trevor Lawrence, then maybe that swings things uh, massively in a different direction. But as long as he stays healthy, uh, Clemson's the easy favorite, easy pick to not just win the ACC. They're also – if you – gun to my head i had to pick one team to make the college football playoff right now i'd be picking clemson i'm sure you probably agree yeah undoubtedly that's they're gonna be there so that um you know i think the the way to keep this interesting and and kind of look at the question a bit more is do you think that any of these other teams can make a new year's six bowl game now, that's an interesting question. I think we, we talked about, you know, if any other team could make a run at the playoff, and I think we both agree that that's a negative. Um, if someone somehow jumped up and stole the conference away from Clemson, I don't think they would jump in. I still think Clemson would be the favorite to make the playoff um, in spite of that. But I do think that both Syracuse and maybe Miami, depending on what happens um, offensively for the Hurricanes, could be potential New Year's Six threats. Um, I think, I don't know that I would project either to quite get there, but I do think both teams are talented enough. Um, and if things broke the right way that they could ultimately sneak into one of the, the last couple slots available in the new year six. Yeah, I, 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 I definitely think Clemson or sorry, Clemson is obviously in Syracuse is probably that next team that has the best shot. I would say, um, I think given the fact that they are, you know, the team that we're both projecting to have that best shot. And then also you look at, um, you know, the ACC is going to get somebody into the Orange Bowl is, is something we have to keep in mind. So it's almost a definite that one of those teams is going to be in there. Um, at the same time, it's, um, you know, I, I think they could even land an at-large bid with one of those teams out of the, the coastal as well. If, if you know, one of the Virginia schools or Miami does step up and is a, a, you know, a solid team coming into the championship game. Like you said, if they're not just a pit-like coastal champion, but they're a legitimate threat, um, you know, if they come in already with 10 wins, they could very well be a, a third team getting a, a spot in one of those, those 12. So. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. So Zach, I'll kick it to you. Offensive. Who do you got? Offensive, defensive player of the years. I think offensively, it'd be really hard to say it's going to be anybody other than Trevor Lawrence. Um, I think at this point, uh, it would take a really phenomenal season from somebody else in that, conference to to break his kind of lock on it um defensively though I I, you know I think I really like Bryce Hall at Virginia I mentioned him when we talked about Virginia um he's quite possibly the best cornerback in the entire country I could see him being the first quarterback or the first cornerback selected in the NFL draft he's that good and, you know, after he defended 24 passes, you know, he broke up 24 for uh, pass attempts last year. 
I could see him getting even closer to 30 on that. He's just such a ball hawk, and uh, I think that's what's going to make him go the distance on that. Yeah, I, I love that pick. I like Bryce Hall a lot. Obviously, I'm going to agree with you and be boring and say Trevor Lawrence wins ACC Offensive Player of the Year. That feels like a sure bet as Clemson winning the conference, to be honest with you, because he's he's just an amazing talent at the position. I mean, you've got teams who are already going to be trying to position themselves to have the top pick in the 2021 NFL Draft just to get him because he's the you know type of franchise-altering talent that doesn't come around that often he's kind of been crowned that since he was in high school yeah. and we obviously saw as a true freshman that he lived up to every bit of the hype and even exceeded it um so yeah I've got him defensively I'm gonna stick with my coastal pick of Miami and I'm gonna go with Shaq Quarterman at linebacker um as the defensive player of the year I think him and Michael Pickney uh both at Miami will have a really good shot. I think the Hurricanes, a big boost for them is having one of the best linebacking cores in college football. So I think one of them, I'm going to go with Shaq Quarterman taking um, Defensive Player of the Year honors. I do like Bryce Hall a lot. I also like Isaiah Simmons at Clemson, the kind of hybrid linebacker slash safety for them. Um, I think they'll all kind of be in the running uh, for that award. And you mentioned Alton Robinson yeah, as well I was gonna at Syracuse. Well again. Um, and I think he's got, he's another guy that could have a really big year that could boost Syracuse up and he could steal it as well. But I'll go with Shaq Quarterman and what should be a really tight race for defensive player of the year. That's definitely the more interesting race. There's no real clear favorite. Yeah. I think that's going to be a really fun one to keep an eye on all season long. Well, on that note, everybody, I hope you've enjoyed our look at the ACC this week. Next week, we'll be concluding our look at the 2019 college football uh, conference-by-conference previews with our look at the Southeastern Conference, uh, John's neck of the woods. So we'll be finishing up with the, the land of Alabama and the 13 dwarfs. So uh, <laughs> I hope you all have a wonderful rest of your week as we continue to approach the upcoming college football season. And uh, we'll be back with you next Wednesday.